you do receive our weekly email updates, we wrote a little bit about Jared. Here's what we put there. Jared serves as pastoral intern at Hope Presbyterian Church in Lexington, Kentucky, and he's recently finished seminary. He's studying now to, and has done some of his ordination exams. How have those gone, by the way? Good. Okay, good. And he's also the Northside Director at Lexington Young Life. Um, as I wrote here, the first time that Jared came and filled our pulpit, we were meeting over at the Village Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he was single. And then this gal, Catherine, is somebody he pursued, said, hey, will you marry me? She said, sure. And then now they have two kids, um, pretty young. So they are right in the thick of being new parents and expanding um, the image of God uh, all throughout the world and doing their part in that. So they have these two beautiful children, and we've said, hey, come on up every now and then to, to Jared as he explores his calling, especially in filling the pulpit, and we're delighted to have him back here again today. So Jared, you can give us whatever other update on life that you want to, to fill in some of the blanks and just bless us with God's word this morning. So let's welcome Jared. It's good to be back with you all. All right, maybe I'm just glad to be here this morning. Okay. Um, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord this morning. Praise be to God. As Pastor Mark said, yes, I am now married going on three years in March of next year. Um, we have a almost two-year-old named Winslow, our little girl, and another little girl, Callaway, who was four months old. So you can be praying for us. Um, more specifically, Catherine, as she is staying at home with those two pretty, beautiful babies of ours. Um, recently, last week, I completed the licensure uh, portion of the ordination to our denomination, which really means um, you've climbed a hill and everything is now downhill. Um, so God has been grateful for sure in my life. Uh, thank you. Um, and I do want to say thank you to Redeemer Church. Um, it was this place that I had the privilege of preaching my first sermon. And so you all historically have been a part of this process and God's work in my life. So I do say thank you, Pastor Mark and his wife and the rest of you all um, for your um, cultivation and molding of my call. Meet me in Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4, reading to verse 9. When you're there, say, I got it. If not, say, hold up. This is how the word of the Lord reads. Numbers chapter 21, starting at verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. 
And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The word of the Lord. I want to title this sermon in our exchange, The Grace and Redirection. I want to talk from that vantage point for a few moments, The Grace and Redirection. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for your spirit. Father, we ask for that spirit now to prepare our hearts for the preaching of your word, that that spirit would give me power, preaching power, to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. Now, Lord, whatever is not of you, would it fall off in these moments? And would your word fall on fresh soil? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Patience. Patience is virtue. Many of you are well acquainted with that kind of saying. Maybe you heard it on TV or in the car while listening to talk radio or your favorite podcast for some of you more modern folk in the room. Sitting in class or at the dinner table as a child, you heard those words. Patience is virtue. But on the other hand, I can't imagine that there are some of you here this morning who have never heard the quote, patience is virtue. See, you are a part of a generation that only knows hurry and restlessness as virtue. So much so that there is a bestseller book titled, and I quote, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Therefore, I can say that the 2021 individual does not see patience as a virtue. In your mind, it is either untrue or simply unworthy of your attention or energy. And after all, patience is for the weak. It's for the undetermined, the arrogant. It is to say that if you want something in life, then you ought to be able to will it into being. Go after it under your own volition with no consequence. But that ain't none of y'all. No, no, no. You are all fine, astute Christian folk who know your place in the world and understand that patience and waiting is good Christian behavior. Oh, yeah. You, you never get upset when waiting in line for Starbucks like I do sometimes. Or when I'm at the red light that just turned green and instantly I look honk at the person as if they are to know that I'm running behind and that they're in my way. 
or when my family isn't moving fast enough according to my standards. No, that's none of you good people this morning. You don't ever get frustrated with your place in life because you are the youngest in the room or the least experienced in your career. You are perfectly and joyfully content with being in the midst of the hardest portion of your degree or certification or some kind of training in your life, knowing the kind of freedom that lies ahead when you graduate or complete that endeavor. You, you, you never get upset with God when his timeline doesn't match up to yours. Well, by the way, you are all looking at me. I guess I'm the only one that came to tell the truth this morning. The fact that you are already thinking about where you're going to eat lunch after church or brunch or what's for dinner later on or how you can't wait to watch those Cincinnati Bengals play or the Atlanta Falcons for me. None of those things will suggest that maybe you do have a problem with waiting. But I want to take it a step further. See, your struggle with patience is because you don't want to suffer. You don't like the space between what isn't and what will be. And one author says that patience entails much more than merely waiting. It's the essence of, patient, of patience is the willingness to endure suffering. And after all, suffering is the very root meaning of the word patience. Therefore, suffering or waiting or having to wait in your mind means that God is not doing what he said he would do when you want him to do it. Oh yeah, your distaste, your abrasiveness, your apprehension towards waiting on God is synonymous with your faithlessness in God. Okay, that didn't stick. Uh, it, there's one thing, here, here's a side note. Uh, this may or may not be your first time hearing a chocolate man preach. And in the rich historical tradition of black preaching, there is something called dialogical preaching, where the preacher proclaims something to the audience or the congregation, and the congregation that agrees with that will talk back with an amen or a yes, pastor, or make it plain or something to that effect. Thank you. And if you want me to leave from your presence faster, then I would advise you to talk back to me. That's all I'll say. So let me try this again. This text is tailored to teach you and I that your impatience or your unwillingness to suffer is an indicator that you do not believe in God will do what he said he would do. Here, here you and I are getting a front row display yet again of the drama that is called the Israelites. And one could read this and think that they are the main characters of this story. And after all, this is precisely what the Israelites thought of themselves. The main characters in their own story. The Israelites who were just divinely emancipated from under the thumb of O Pharaoh are now liberated people. A people with a new identity, a, a new purpose, none of which was their own doing. The God of heaven and earth, Yahweh as they knew him, had just demonstrated to the ancient world that they are his people and he is their God. 
chosen out of the world to be a people of his own possession, an instrument for his own perfect will. And what kind of people did God choose? Mm. You've read your Bible. These were people who were lowly, who were homeless, who were poor and powerless. God was on their side and not of those of those powerful surrounding nations. And it was Moses up on that mountain of God that asked, Lord, what shall I tell the people who you are? And there God is. Moses, tell the people I am. I am is the one who toppled the Egyptian nation with nothing but the power of his voice. It was I am who sent the locusts and the plagues and the boils and the Passover. It was I am who lifted the seas from their home in order to create a highway as a getaway. I am made a way when there was no way. It was I am who opened the earth and swallowed up an attempted coup by Korah and his henchmen. Oh, but it was the great I am that has gotten these Israelites to this very point in our text. And after 38 years of being in a desert and wandering and having no food or no water of their own hands, here they are, alive and well. Fed, literally, by bread from heaven, water from the ground, clothes and shoes intact, their kids' bellies full. It is I am, has been what he has always been, faithful. And when Israel complained, he still showed up. When they were hungry, he showed up. When they got thirsty, he showed up. When they wanted more than bread, God said, okay, birds fall from heaven to give these folks meat. And this is the backdrop. This is the backdrop of our passage this morning. The Israelites are on the brink of inheriting that promise of a land flowing with milk and honey. They have just experienced salvation and victory and freedom. But now they're grumbling. Oh, yeah, complaining talking behind God's proverbial back. We have no food. Lord, we, we have no water. Because the, what we do have is worthless. What God had given him wasn't good enough. What a picture. Oh, what a picture. What an illustration of the human predicament. Verses 4 and 5 teach us that when God doesn't give us what we want, when we want it, he goes from friend to enemy, victor to villain. That's the tone. That's the tone of the people's quarry towards God. I don't care what you've done for us yesterday. What can you do for me right now? Many of you that I, I've been here before, you, you've seen my, my little daughter Winslow. Uh, maybe in the nursery, if you, if you were there a couple, maybe that was last year, the last time I was here. Um, but just last week, last Sunday, our second daughter, Callaway, was getting baptized. And Winslow was with us. Usually she goes straight to the nursery. She was almost two. And there our pastor, Marshall, is 
saying all the things, saying the, the, the promises and sacrament uh, language about baptism. And Winslow is pitching a fit in front of everyone. So then I put her down to see maybe that would help out. Then she just lays on the floor. She starts kicking and screaming. And then I have to take her out of, of the service because she's um, causing a disruption of sorts. Now I can tell her no sometimes. But other times when I tell Winslow no, that child becomes something else. <laughs> She, she doesn't like it when things aren't going her way. She doesn't like it when she can't have what she wants when she wants it. She will kick. She will scream. And my favorite is, this is new, she will point a finger at me and, and talk back. <laughs> Whatever that means, she has to let me know. In a moment's notice, I or her mother be who was once her favorite person in the world is now her enemy. Where the bad guy? Why? Because she is naturally inclined to only care about her needs and her wants, regardless of how it will impact her own well-being. Friends, this is a window into the human heart. Your heart. It is easy to say that she is just a child. And that's how children act. But what happens when things don't go the way you want or plan? What do you say when, to God when life has become difficult? When choices, what choices do you make after someone or something has told you no? We point the finger at God and we hold him in contempt. Then you begin to daydream and imagine what life will be like on the other side of the fence. You look across the way and believe that life is greener with that other woman or that other man. Or to live in that one neighborhood with those nice people and all those nice things. You begin to justify your behavior because it makes you feel better knowing deep down what you are doing is spiritual erosion. And there are times... There are times when the Bible utilizes descriptive language versus prescriptive. And friends, this is one of them. Moses is telling a, a story to the second generation so they would not make the same mistakes their parents made. And all I'm trying to say is that while you fantasize about what could be and what ought to be, just take a moment to look around and see what is. Lord, help me, Jesus. Lift your head up and see how faithful God has been to you in the present and in the past. Because guess what? That's what will give you hope for the future. And see that he woke you up this morning. That he kept death at bay at least one more day. He said to the sun, rise up and give light to the world. He brought food to your belly and air into your lungs. He has sustained your existence without even breaking a sweat. And with the word of his power, the earth, the earth is still spinning perfectly on its axis. And you can tell me all the scientific equations that are true as, that, as, as how that happens. But something, no, someone 
is making that scientific equation true. The echoes of Job are present here. Where were you when he said, let there be light? Where were you when he separated the heavens from the earth? Or told the oceans where to stop and the mountains where to stand? Oh, how quickly we take God's goodness for granted. And I can hear, I can hear those words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 saying to those up there on that mountain with him, if the birds of the air are fed and the flowers of the fields are adorned with glory, how much more valuable are you to your Father in heaven? Is not life more than what you can see and touch and taste? And, and you may not have the fancy cars or the fancy clothes or the big house or all the money in the world. You may not have that spouse you so desperately desire, or the prominent social standing or professional security. But you know what you do have? I'm having fun now. <laughs> A God who loves you, who fights for you when you're not looking, who cares for you when your circumstances cannot. You have a God who bankrupted heaven so that you could be his again. A God who looked behind your past and gave you a future. And sometimes, here it is, sometimes God withholds things from us because we, he knows that we do not possess the maturity or the humility to steward it responsibly. In other words, be thankful for what you don't have because it could cause you to stumble and fall away. Notice now, while Israel got into their current predicament with God, just a moment ago, God had just given the Canaanites into the Israelites' hands. They were feeling good after victory. The promise that God had given to their forefathers was finally within their reach. Their promised land was just on the horizon. They could see it. Oh, they could see it literally right in front of them. And what does God say? Verse 4. Yo, Moses, tell the people to go around Edom and step through it. Friends, don't miss what's happening here. Don't be in such a hurry to move past the details. The quickest and most convenient route from Egypt to Israel would have been on interstate Edom. And surely God would take his people the most logical and efficient way to their destination. That's what you and, and I would do, right? But you know what makes God God? Because he's all-knowing. He exists outside of time and space. He sees what we cannot and knows what we do not know. And God can see around the corner and up ahead before you get there. His omniscience is a kind of Google Maps or, or ways that you plug in your destination, your phone gives you the best route available. But every now and then, you, you know how it goes, something comes up. There's a crash ahead. There's an emergency up ahead. Maybe there's a pothole in the street that it'll tell you about. Traffic is 10 miles up ahead on your route. 
And all of a sudden, you're rerouted and, and you bypass the danger ahead of you. I'm trying the best I can, church. Come on. I, I know that there's someone picking up what I'm trying to lay down. What the Israelites didn't know is that there was danger up ahead. Death and despair were in their path. And to go through Edom meant that they would have to go through a desert like the deaths, like the, like the likes of Death Valley. They would have to traverse an unknown, powerful enemy's territories. Who would become Israel's arch nemesis in the future? The Edomites. What Israel believed to be an inconvenience was actually God showing them mercy. And God is not in the business of making you and I comfortable. Instead, he is in the business of making us anew, making us holy and righteous. And part of that process will entail sanctifying redirections in your life. And when God redirects your life, it is not only to save you from what's up ahead, but sometimes it's so that you are prepared for life in front of you. That's right. His name is on the line here. And his number one priority is to see you through this world at all costs. Because that's what he said he would do. You may not like it. You may even be confused or discouraged. But here's what I do know to be true. That all things, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What then shall they say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It was a hot summer in New Hebron, Mississippi. The year was 1946. And John Perkins and his older brother, Clyde, two black men, had been out in the town on a typical Saturday in Jim Crow South. John was out with his friends and Clyde with his girlfriend at the movie theater. And there Clyde was, waiting in line. He and his girlfriend had allegedly started to get loud with one another. And the town deputy marshal had seen what was going on and told them to quiet it down. Clyde, a World War II veteran, a man who fought for his own country, comes back home and is no longer seen as a man. A black man, he had been turned away from this deputy, and as he was turning around to ask the officer a question, the officer clubbed him. Clyde, in self-defense, tried to grab the officer's club. You know the history. A black man resisting arrest in the 40s? That was all she wrote. The officer sworn to protect and serve his community had the full force of Jim Crow law to kill this man unjustly. Moments later, Clyde is lying on the pavement in the streets of New Hebron, shocked. Clyde would die that night and young John Perkins would never be the same. Years later, John would 
make his way back to Mississippi by way of California. He swore he would never set foot in Jim Crow South again after the death of his brother, unjustly. But God had other plans. Oh, yeah. He had directed, he had, excuse me, redirected him for something else. Perkins' oldest son had been gun, going to children's Bible classes down the street. Then his good friend had invited him to the same church. And Perkins said he would never believe in Christianity. Because it was white folks who used to oppress people that looked like him because of their Christianity. But there he was sitting in church, reading his Bible later on for weeks. And one day, John had given his life to the Lord. And I guess I must be preaching to myself now. <laughs> God had saved this man in spite of his own painful history at the hands of so-called Christians. Friends, all things, all things work together for the good of those who love God. And when it seems dark, and when it seems gloomy, and when you, when you do not know what to do or to begin questioning where God has you, know that God is working on your behalf. He's moving when you aren't looking, making a way even when you keep getting in the way. And this brings me to the close of my sermon. I've just got a few more things to say before I'm out of your way. The scene closes with God sending fiery serpents to deal with Israel's rebellion and unbelief. The Bible says that many people had died and it caused Israel to plead with Moses to ask God for forgiveness. I don't know why some died. This is part of the mystery of who God is. But what I do know is that when you confess your sins, when you bring all of you to God, when you display a godly sorrow as Paul so eloquently describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, or as John puts it in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Friends, the application is clear. God doesn't leave Israel in their shame and mess. Therefore, he won't leave you in yours. And I don't know how else to get you to see the good news here, but the very thing that God used to bring about Israel's repentance is the very thing he used to save them from death. It is not the actual snake on the pole that saves Israel from their deadly predicament. No, no. It is faith in God's word about what would happen if you looked upon that bronze snake on a pole. Look and you will be saved. I'm done now, but I'll leave you with this. What happened to old Israel when they looked up at that snake is the same thing that happens to those who gaze upon a man who hung on a tree. Yes, Lord. John told us that just as Moses was lifted up, the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Friends, I said they stretched them wide on that wood cut into a cross. They put a nail in Jesus' hands. They put nails stacked on his feet. They drove a, a, a spear through his side. Then they hung him high and hung him wide. They mocked him. They spit on him. Then they put a crown of thorns on my King Jesus. 
And they said, Jesus, if you're really God, bring yourself down. But no, he didn't. Jesus stayed up there for you. And then they put him in a tomb. Death had been defeated. The sun had dropped. Darkness covered the land. But early, that's what they would say in my church back home, early Sunday morning, he rose with all power in his hands. Death had been vanquished. Death was no more. And when he rose, he brought you too. And you wonder what God could be doing in your life. I say to you, Christian, look upon the cross and remember what he's done for you. What can, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We ask now that you would build our spirits up and see us to another Sunday. Amen.